0: Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thank you for loving us and for your word and for just all you do for us, Lord. We just desire to be within your will and to live in the truth of knowing that we're your children. And so, Lord, please help us to do that today and help us to Just scratch an inch closer, Lord, knowing that we've been here today and that we've read your word together. So please have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 30. Lord willing, today we'll read 30 and 31. Now, as you've figured out so far in Jeremiah... You know, a lot of Jeremiah is uh, uh, historical. A lot of Jeremiah is prophetic as it relates to the coming Babylonians, sort of prophecy, sort of short-term prophecy within their history. A lot of Jeremiah is about the life of Jeremiah and the challenges that he faces with uh, particularly the Jewish leadership. And, And then some of Jeremiah, um, is about um, sort of near and long term prophecy, and so today we move into a section um, that really kind of alludes to points to sort of the distant prophecy and so that's kind of um, kind of exciting honestly um, you know prophecy is one of those things that in the scripture we some people are just prophecy buffs, and some people are not, uh, as much so. And that's okay. And, you know, different parts of the Scripture appeal to different people in different ways and that sort of thing. And uh, and yet, probably about some, some estimates, about a fourth of the Bible is prophetic. And so uh, we'd be negligent to ignore, you know, that. But then in the midst of that also, I think especially as we see it in our time, um, I just got to say this, there's a lot of encouragement I get from reading prophecy, and the more I read prophecy, the more encouraged I get um, when I realize how very relevant it is, and so sometimes you can read prophecy and you can feel like, sometimes there's a vibe that it's like doomsday is coming, right, you ever, anybody ever, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, prophecy is like all just uh, catastrophic events in our future. And I want us to more be comforted by the fact, by when we read prophecy, knowing that, yeah, there's, there's stuff that's going to happen for sure. But when I read prophecy, I'm reminded above all that God is in control and that God loves me. And that God's going to take care of me like a father takes care of his child. Uh, The ultimate father takes care of the child that he loves way more than I could ever love a child. Okay? And so I think it's very important that we keep that in context. Does that make sense? And so as we do that, and then as we read about, you know, you just consider certain things. Um, Like, you know, um, I was going to talk about this in a little bit, but I'll talk about it right now. Um, you know, there's a reference in Revelation that during the time of the Great Tribulation, um, you know, you can't buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast on your forehead or on your right hand, right? Is that news to anybody? Everybody with, you, with me on that? So that's kind of creepy. Is that kind of creepy? and so we as christians we we know enough to know i mean no matter how biblically literate we are we know enough to know i don't think i'm supposed to have that thing on my right hand or my forehead and then we think but i probably need to eat and buy and sell and so how does that all fit together well how it fits together is there's a great scheme of things and a great order of things i believe there's going to be the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation and there's going to be a lot of things going on. But then as, you, as it plays out, you're like, well, how could that happen? Okay. How, how could there be a... Think about the time that John wrote Revelation. In the first century A.D. How could there be a concept of like somebody having some kind of mark on their forehead or on their arm or on their hand? John would have never conceptualized that. Fast forward a couple thousand years, right? Can we conceptualize it, right? Fast forward, let's say to to five years ago. We, I mean, we put microchips in dogs, right? I mean, you do them in your pets, right? Yeah, a chip, that makes sense, right? John would have had no clue that it's possible to chip anybody, right? Can we chip people? Is it possible? Is that that within the realm of our comprehension now? Totally. And let me just say this, and again, all controversy aside, is it possible that there could be... Let me just say this. I've heard it said that, you know, the current COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. I don't believe that at all. Okay. But what is a little more clear to us now than maybe three years ago? Could it be that there might be some kind of worldwide crisis that might cause some worldwide identification of a group of people either having some implanted identification or not? Is that beyond the realm of comprehension? Not at all. It was a little of a stretch just a few years ago. It was inconceivable in the time of John's writing, right? And so as we see prophecy roll out, you know, there's a a reference there in the the book of Revelation. There's going to be two witnesses that uh, are going to be killed. And they're going to be laying there on the street for three days. And all the world, it says, is going to see them dead, basically laying in the middle of the street for three days. Well, when John wrote that in the first century A.D., It would have been inconceivable that the whole world could see these guys. And so he would just write it because God told him to write it. Fast forward, you got the internet, right? Is it possible? Is it conceivable for two guys to be dead on the street and the whole world to see it for three days? Is that conceivable? It's totally conceivable. And so all these, basically these are just examples I give to tell us that the scripture is very, uh, it's always been believable. It's always been relevant, but it's even now as we see history play out, we see, oh, you know. And I think we can see, even as we read these, these words in Jeremiah, we can see, oh. And let me just say, as, as Paul tells the Thessalonians talking about prophetic events, he said, comfort one another with these words. And so prophetic words should be comforting to us as believers. They should be motivating to us but they should be also comforting to us. So that's the sort of backdrop. Is that all right? Everybody good with that? Chapter 30. Um, but before we get into chapter 30, one of historical now, historical overview. Um, I want to just bring us back to, remember at this time in history, we're just talking about the nation of Judah. Okay. Remember Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham from your descendants, all the world is going to be blessed, basically means the Messiah is going to come from your line. So the whole, book of the, uh, the whole Bible is basically about Jesus, and starting from Genesis chapter 12, we know that Jesus is going to be a descendant of Abraham, and, um, and it's all about the history of that nation. We know that after Solomon, his son Rehoboam, during the reign of Rehoboam, the nation was split. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom described as Judah, Right? We know that at the time of this writing, 150 years prior, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, has already been conquered by the Assyrians. And when the Assyrians did that, they removed all those people, they brought in a bunch of other conquered nations, and now you got a bunch of sort of, um, for lack of a better term, half-bred, sort of Jewish, sort of pagan people occupying that northern kingdom of Israel. We know them in the New Testament as Samaritans, right? And so now we know that the Jewish people, the true Jews in Judah, hate those Samaritans in the New Testament and all that. But you see two nations that are kind of of now with separate identities. The nation of Israel has already been uh, scattered and resettled. The nation of Judah is now who we're talking about. And so, um, and the reason I say that is because a lot of these verses in 30 and 31 talk about the regathering of Israel and Judah. So we're not talking about just the regathering of the captives of Judah from Babylon. We're talking about a more future event. Does that make sense? So um, that's the setting here. And then further context, in chapter, chapters 30 to 33 go together. But in chapter 32, in the first couple of verses, we see the, the specific historical context. And that is, it says, in the 10th year of Zedekiah. Now, you may recall from the slide we put up the last few weeks, uh, which is not up today. I've just realized that uh, there were a couple of misspellings on that slide. Raise your hand if you knew that. <laughs> Me neither. So anyway, um, so that's why it's not up there. I don't want to put anything wrong up there. But, it, but and Zedekiah was the last king of the nation of Judah, carried off by Babylon. And now this is in the 10th year of his reign. So this literally would have been a, the time of the Babylonian siege. Okay, So you remember the Babylonian warfare tactics. Now, they've conquered Judah twice already and taken off some captives, but never really fully conquered them. But now in 586 B.C., they're going to finally, definitively conquer them. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to annihilate Jerusalem big time. And the way they do that is they surround the city for basically about a year and a half and starve them out. Well, if you've got people that have been starved out for a year and a half... They're pretty easy targets when you then go in and take over the, the city, right? And so, um, so the setting that we're reading these words is in the middle of that siege. So just get your head around that for a second, okay? Everybody got that? Is your head in the right spot? See, you thought you were stressed about COVID, right? You thought you were stressed about rain, Right? But we're talking about a Babylonian siege. Jeremiah has been saying now for decades, they're coming, they're going to take us, they're going to conquer us. All the false prophets have been saying, no, they won't, no, they won't, no, they won't. Well, now, sure enough, they are surrounding the city. You can look out over the gate, over the walls and say, yep, there they are. A bunch of Babylonians, thousands of them, right, just starving us out, starving us out wearing us down you feel worn down a little bit by covid imagine a babylonian siege right that's the setting we're writing it we're we're reading and you got to imagine how how discouraged and how disheartened those people would be and these are the words the word that came to jeremiah from the lord saying thus speaks the lord god of israel saying Write in a book for yourself all the words that I've spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And so, you know, it appears that Jeremiah's been writing all along, but here God specifically says, write in a book for yourself these words. And so God wants these things to be emphasized. And so... Um, the point is, in this time of great stress during this Babylonian siege, God wants his people to be encouraged. I like that. I like that. God wants his people to be encouraged during this time of the siege. And so we see, a, we see an indication. We know that the short-term fulfillment, Jeremiah's already mentioned it a couple times, is, yep, you're going to be carried off to Babylon. You're going to be enslaved there. You're going to be there for 70 years. And after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back to the land of Jerusalem. But that's just the nation of Judah. God says, here, I'm going to bring back Israel and Judah. So there's sort of a, and this is a principle we see throughout uh, prophecy, is there's sort of a near-term fulfillment that's sort of a partial fulfillment. And then there's, it it points to a more distant fulfillment. And the more distant fulfillment is God's going to bring back the nation of Israel and Judah to that promised land. And that's what what he's more completely talking about. Verse 4, now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. So again, the two of them together. For thus says the Lord, we've heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. Now, is a man in labor with child? No. No. A man is a man, and a woman is a woman. See, Jeremiah wrote these things when he thought those things were intuitively obvious. But we've got to put ourselves in context. So, women birth children. I good? Do I need to go through that anymore? I'm a doctor. I could, I could walk through it with you if you need to. Okay? Women give birth to children. A man, ask whether or not we've ever seen if a man is in labor with a child. No, we don't. So why then do I see every man with his hands on his loins? But you got to—I like these descriptions. You want me to demonstrate? With a man with a hand, his hand on his loins, like a woman in labor, right? I don't think Jeremiah's been through this. And all of his faces turn pale. You ever like hold your breath, right? You know, I would think maybe your face gets red, and then after a while, it goes pale. And alas, for that day is great, so that there is none like it. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So Jeremiah, what he's, this little word picture about a man looking like he's going through labor is really just a picture of great, um, of great trial, of great difficulty for, um, for the Jewish people. And it's, called, it's referred to as Jacob's trouble. And so this brings us to a point I think probably a good time to Uh, give sort of a prophetic timeline, if you will. And this is, I'm not an expert in prophecy by any means, uh, but the way I read it, uh, there's basically going to be a rapture of the church. The next prophetic event to happen is the rapture of the church. We all get caught up in the air. We go to be with the Lord, and uh, there's several references to that, specifically in Thessalonians and in Revelation. Um, Then after that, comes the antichrist the antichrist is going to come on planet earth and be an agent of peace now again we might think would there be ever a time in world events where we need somebody where the world needs somebody to bring all this together and everybody get along would that person be like rise to the top pretty pretty instantaneously absolutely absolutely that person is going to be sort of a sort of a political savior of the world if you will and he's going to one of the things he's going to do is he's going to make a deal with the Jewish people and part of that deal is he's going to help them rebuild their temple and this and this tribulation and this is during the tribulation period so after the rapture of the church there's a tribulation period that goes on for 7 years during the first part of that 7 years is all about the deception from the antichrist and the temple gets built And halfway through that seven-year period, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the Antichrist himself goes into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and and demands to be worshipped as God. And at that point, the Jewish people say, whoops, we've been duped. And now there's great persecution against the Jewish people, and they flee, right? Right? You know, in Jesus, uh, the, the Olivet Discourse there in Matthew chapter 24, he says, when you see these things, run to... He's talking to Jewish people. He says, when you see these things, run to the mountains. Yeah. Right? And that's, and, and that, that, when the devil, or when the devil, when the Antichrist goes in and demands to be worshipped as God, Jesus refers to it as the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So it's prophet, prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, and then Jesus elaborates on it a little bit in the Olivet Discourse. But anyway, so during that last half of the seven year period, there's tremendous persecution to the Jewish people. Uh, this is what Jeremiah is referring to as Jacob's trouble. Okay. And so then after that there's, you know, everybody's out to get the Jews and then sure enough, uh we see at the end of that time we see all these nations, this coalition of nations and we see it in Ezekiel 38, uh Russia and in, in collaboration with Iran. By the way, is that conceivable? Yeah, it's very conceivable. Russian collaboration with Iran and some other nations. They come and they're going to attack on Israel and guess what? Jesus shows up and changes the course of the of the battle. We know it as the Battle of Armageddon. And then he sets up his, his, his reign, his throne, literally in Jerusalem, and sets up a thousand-year millennial kingdom. And he reigns. We reign with him. Uh, many people believe that we who've been raptured for seven years prior, we now come back with him uh, to reign with him on planet Earth for that thousand years. After that thousand years, Satan's released for a brief time. And then finally, there's final uh, judgment, heaven and hell, and we all live uh, eternally with the Lord. That'll be a good thing, right? And so um, what we're talking about here is that period, Jacob's trouble, that second half of the tribulation. Some people refer to as the great tribulation is the second half. And so lots of... Um, uh, lots of challenge to the Jewish people, uh, lots of persecution, lots of tribulation, and uh, setting the stage for Jesus to come back and set foot on earth during the rapture of the church jesus doesn 't come to, jesus doesn 't touch foot on earth; he meets us in the air okay so when you see when you hear of there, that's, there's, there's basically two kind of times Jesus comes back. One, he comes back to the, in the air. We meet him in the air. But when he sets foot on planet Earth, I believe is at the end of the tribulation. Now, obviously, there's different interpretations of end times events and all this, and I just painted one scenario for you. I believe folks that believe like what I just described or, you know, with there's obviously sort of subtleties that are more specifics and stuff like that people that believe what I just said, um, the, the reason we believe that is we believe as much as possible the scriptures to be interpreted literally. So when it says Israel and Judah, I'm taking that to mean Israel and Judah, okay? And when Jesus, you know, this, you've heard me go through this drill. When Jesus was born of a virgin, I believe he was born of a virgin. When it says in Bethlehem, I believe it was in Bethlehem. So when we read about end times events, I believe we're going to read about them like that. So that's why you get this thing. If you, once you start to say, well, this is an allegory, and Israel and Judah, they're, they're a type of something else, and a picture of this, and a picture of that, and next thing you know, the whole thing unravels. Okay? So that's, that's prophecy in a nutshell. Um, verse 8. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So foreigners have been after the Jewish people for a long time, right? If you had no other reason to believe in God, just look at the history of the Jewish people, right? Everywhere from from Haman to Adolf Hitler, you've had people that have tried to annihilate the Jewish people, right? Why? Because they want to annihilate the source of the Messiah, right? And they want to annihilate uh, God's prophetic plans even, even after the Messiah would come. And so um, God says, you know, the day's going to come when uh, I'm going to break the, their bonds and, uh, you know, foreigners are going to no more enslave you and they shall serve the Lord and David their king. Now, some people say this is a reference to Jesus the Messiah when he comes back on earth. And some people say, actually, somehow, Part of this thing is going to be a literal David. You can interpret that however you want. Um, It's either way. God's in control. Therefore, do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest and quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. Now again, you're surrounded by Babylonians. You're starving to death. You know that you're about, in the short term, to be annihilated. You're going to be carried off captive into Babylon. You know, it's just horrible. It's horrible. And God says, you know what? I'm going to save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. So those are words of comfort to the Jewish people, right? Right? God loves to speak words of comfort to the Jewish people. But again, you know, you could say, well, God regathered the nation of Israel and Judah in 1948, which he did, right? We now have the nation of Israel. We don't have Judah and Israel separately. We now have the nation of Israel in modern day history, right? But would we say that uh, no one shall make him afraid? Is Israel sitting there all safe and secure with no enemies? Not at all. But the day will come. So again, we see even yet now uh, a little more fulfillment than we saw seventy years after the captivity. But we see um, not quite full, full full fulfillment even now. For I am with you, uh, says the Lord, verse eleven, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. So we see here a beautiful combination of God's uh, grace and God's justice. God has to punish the Jewish people at this point in their history, right? They've, they've, they've worshiped idols, they've rejected Him, they've done all those things, and God would be a liar if He didn't punish them because He told them all the way back in His far back as their writings it, well documented in, in deuteronomy and elsewhere that uh if you reject me if you serve pagan idols this is what's going to happen and if and if and if god didn't cause that to happen god will be a liar god's not a liar so he has to discipline his children but his ultimate his ultimate plan is to restore is to restore to extend grace and we see all of that go hand in hand together verse 12 for thus says the lord <clears throat> your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy with the chastisement of a cruel one for the multitude of your iniquities because your sins have increased so again he 's talking about their short term need for for discipline. You know all those lovers, all those foreign nations that you worship their idols the you know where are they at now, right. Uh, all your lovers have forgotten you they don't seek you and uh, they're going to scatter uh, during the time of challenge I mean you know all these foreign nations are not helping the Israelites at this point in their history right they're surrounded by Babylonians and everybody else is gone right and that's how um, that's how that goes when we make uh, friendship with the with the world why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable, because of the multitude of your iniquities. Because of your sins have increased. Because your sins have increased, I've done these things to you. So you know, when God disciplines us, can I say this? There are times when God disciplines us, allows us to go through things that we know are a consequence of our wrong decisions, of our sin, of our whatever. Can I suggest one thing to you? Just take it. Don't whine about it. If if we go through things as a result. Of our failures, and I've done it plenty, okay, if we go through things as a result of our, pl- of our sin, of our mistake, of our just misguided thinking, just take it. Just take it. God hasn't forgotten us. God hasn't cast us off. God's going to let us learn lessons. Sometimes in life, we learn lessons right? And sometimes in life, there are, there are lessons, uh, Tracy and I talk about this all the time, there are some lessons that must be learned in the laboratory of challenging experience, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I could sit up here with a PowerPoint, right, and say, these are, the, these are the pitfalls of life. These are the chuck holes, the things to avoid, right? And you'd all be asleep five minutes into it, right? You're asleep now, right? But you'd really be asleep if I did that, right? If I, if I just said, you know, this is, how to, this is how to walk in wisdom, avoid... I mean, we have the scripture. We have the scripture, a lamp into our feet and a line into our paths, but there are some things that we learn in the laboratory of experience. And that's just the reality. And when we do that, just say, Lord, teach me. Lord, teach me. Therefore, verse 16, all those who devour you shall be devoured. So God's going to administer justice to Uh, those enemy nations and all your adversaries every one of them shall go into captivity those who plunder you shall become plunder and all who prey upon you i will make a prey for i will restore health to you and heal to your wounds says the lord because they called you an outcast saying this is zion no one seeks her and so sure enough you know the babylonians came they conquered judah and jerusalem right but guess what the medes and persians conquered the babylonians right and the babylonians weren't restored 70 years later right? They just kind of drifted off into history. Thus says the Lord, verse 18, behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. Again, you're surrounded by Babylonians. You know that destruction is coming. You know that discipline is coming, and you want want restoration for your people, and God's giving encouragement here. The city shall be built upon its own mound, and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them, and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as before, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. So God's going to restore Israel, and again, even this description is not completely fulfilled 70 years after the, you know, after the captivity, when they return. We read about that during, uh, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? We read about the return of, of God's people. It's a great and glorious restoration, but we know that it's not complete. It's not the perfect restoration. It's not the millennial kingdom. And that restoration of God's people happens most completely in the millennial kingdom. And so again, you know, if we read prophecy as literally as possible, when we see these things like everything's going to be utopia, right? Well, we know it wasn't utopia during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They still had things they had to deal with. We know that utopia, in a sense, comes in the millennial kingdom, right? And so that's how we read that. Verse 21, they're nobles, shall be from among them, and their governor shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord. And so, you know, you see the word their nobles and their governor, that's a reference to a political leader, like maybe a king, right? And then also... Um, he, who is this who has pledged his heart to approach me? He shall, uh, he shall approach me uh, as a reference to sort of a priest. And so some would say, and again, you know, some of these things are not exactly black and white. And they, they need some interpretation, and there's uh, different interpretations sometimes. Uh, but some would say that's a reference to Jesus as uh, the king and the priest. And that's, that's plausible. Verse 22, you shall be my people and I will be your God. You shall be my people and I will be your God. You're surrounded by Babylonians. You're tired of COVID. You've lost loved ones. It's January. (laughs) You're just kind of like, really? When do the daffodils come out? Right? You feel that way? You ever feel that way? And can I just tell you this? During all the seasons of life, the heart of God says, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Doesn't that just make everything wash away? I don't care if it's COVID or Babylonians. You will be my people and I will be your God. We just need to settle in there a little bit. And you know, we can all have disagreements and we can all have different opinions about everything. But that should be the thing that glues us together. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of the heart. He says, in the latter days you will consider it. And so again, this in the latter days gives us a picture of restoration, but it also points to the idea that we're talking really about a future restoration. But this is what I love, again, about prophecy. I don't care if we're talking about the near fulfillment. You know, you're going to be carried off to Babylon and in 70 years you're going to come back. Okay, that's near fulfillment. Or a little more far fulfillment. You know, God's going to bring back the, the people of Israel and Judah. Sure enough, that happened in 1948. Or the more far fulfillment, and we find ourselves kind of after 1948, but before the Millennial Kingdom, right? Or maybe the the, the more far fulfillment, you know, the church's going to be raptured, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation, it's going to be the time of Jacob's trouble, it's going to be very difficult, the Jews are going to be persecuted, but then Jesus is going to come back and restore everything, and everything's going to be awesome. But here's the thing, those are all events, right? Those are all events. And through all of those events, From the Babylonian siege to the millennial kingdom and everything in between, God desires to be our God and we his people. And we every day in every circumstance and in every trial have that as our baseline. That should bring us tremendous security. We could argue theology. We could argue politics. We could argue COVID. We could argue denominations. We could argue anything. And we do. (laughs) But through it all, you shall be my people and I will be your God. And in the latter days, you will consider it. See, what he means, well, what I think he's saying, is the more time goes on, the more it becomes a little bit obvious. Right? The more time goes on, I'm not really freaked out by future events as God plays them out because God's going to be my God and I'm going to be his child through all of that, number one. And number two, in the latter days, you'll consider it. In the latter days, and I believe we're in the latter days, in the latter days, it'll be a little more clear, right? Revelation is a little more um, conceivable now than it was when John wrote it. And probably and honestly, end times events to me are a little more clear now than they were before COVID. Right? Who knows how clear it'll be a year from now, five years from now, 100 years from now. Who knows? God knows. And the more time goes on and the more we grow in our relationship and our understanding with him, the more we can say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Aren't you glad he's in control and you're not? Yes. Was there a time when you kind of wished you were in control and he wasn't? Maybe early in our... Come on, work with me. Yes, there was. <laughs> <laughs> There's a... when I... Okay, I just got to have 30 seconds. Can I have 30 seconds? Yeah. When I was in medical school, I was a third-year medical student doing a rotation with a surgeon who was off the charts obnoxious. And my job is to hold the, the suction thing. And he says, suck. I'm like, yes, sir. And he says, not there where I'm looking. <laughs> I said, sir, I don't know where you're looking. <laughs> That's the wrong thing to say. So anyway, um, Yeah, so you're supposed to give the answer that I'm asking for, right? So the answer I'm asking for is, you know, there's a point in our lives when we kind of want to be in control, right? And my point is, as we journey with the Lord, ideally, the point is, we're supposed to be able to say, Your will be done. I really, you know, however this works out, I'm just glad I don't have to decide it. I'm glad I don't have to orchestrate it. I'm glad you're in control. I just want to have fellowship with you. Right? That's what we want. Chapter 31, he goes in. Now, this is a little more description of uh, the time of the millennium. Um, And again, keep in mind, he's given this description during the time of a siege. Okay, He's encouraging his people as they face a Babylonian siege. Amazing context. He says, at that time, and again we see, you know, a continuation in the latter days you'll consider it. So at that time, uh, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Again, that's the heart of the Lord. That's the heart of the Lord, is it's all about relationship. It's not about events or circumstances or economics or politics or health care. It's about relationship. Thus says the Lord. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest. And so, again, during that that last half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, when Israel is is scattered in the wilderness, those that survived, God says, found grace in the wilderness. God's going to bring them back. Bring them back to uh, the millennial kingdom. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. You get that in the millennial kingdom, in the great tribulation, in the Babylonian siege. And in 2022, God would say to his children, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. God draws us. God draws us. By his sovereign hand, he draws us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He draws us into that place of fellowship with him regardless of the circumstances. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, a picture of the innocence, of of an innocent child. You You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when watchmen will cry on Mount Ephraim, and rise and let us they'll say, Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. So Mount Ephraim, Ephraim would have been in the northern kingdom of Israel, right? The kingdom that's now scattered. But Zion is a reference to Jerusalem, in the, the capital of the southern kingdom. And so the man, the watchman up on Mount Ephraim in the northern kingdom, he's gonna say, Hey, let's go down to Zion or let's go up to Zion in Jerusalem, right? Because we're all one big nation. We're all one big happy family. We're we're dancing with Uh, The dance of those who rejoice. Again, great encouragement. Great encouragement for the reunited northern and southern kingdom in the face of a Babylonian siege. Verse 7, for thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, right now they're probably not, they probably need to be reminded because the Babylonians are surrounding them. They probably need to be reminded to sing with gladness for Jacob. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Again, a distant reference. "Among Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there they shall come with weeping and with supplications i will lead them i will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble for i am a father to israel and ephraim is my firstborn hear the word o lord o, hear hear the word of the lord o nations and declare it in the isles afar off and say he who scattered israel will gather him Again, just a picture of regathering. And keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of of one stronger than he. Are there those stronger than us on this earth? Yeah, there are. But is God stronger? Is he who is in us stronger than he who is in the world? You bet. You bet. See, there's this thing. It's like, I'm weak, right? And I know I'm weak. I'm on an earthly level. Just think about this. On, on a mere earthly level, it's like we're here and the forces of the world are way stronger than we are. Does that make sense? Yeah. The forces of the world, I mean, they're stronger than we are, right? But greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world, First John tells us, right? Where would we be without the Lord? How could we navigate the events of this life without the Lord? And that's why, you know, when people say, you know, I trust anything man, we got to say, that's not good enough for me, right? Right. I don't trust any man-made solution. Now, we have to walk wisely and all that on earth with other human beings, but I don't trust a man-made solution. Verse 12, therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd. Just such a picture of bounty. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Again, that's got to be a reference to the millennial kingdom, right? (laughs) Because that hasn't happened yet. Then shall the virgin rejoice in, in the dance, and the young men and the old together For I will turn their mourning to joy, I will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Now here's what I would say to us today, right? These words literally are going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, but there's a principle here, an underlying principle. God wants to be our God and we his children, right? And that's available to us today, right? Do we have to wait for the millennial kingdom to be his children? No. no. Do we have to, here's something else. Do we have to wait for the millennial kingdom to say, I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord? Right? We don't have to wait for that. We don't have to wait for that at all. God's goodness is available to us today. And we need to be reminded of that. And we need to remind others of that. How much of the dialogue today is about events of today? Way too much. Myself included. I have to navigate the events of the day, right? But the reality is, we shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. That's a verse to hang on to. That's a verse to hang on to. Then he goes on, thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more, Says the Lord. thus says the Lord. Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. And so... Um, as you may know, this voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and, weep, and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. That was quoted in the New Testament, right? When Herod killed all the babies two years and under, right? It caused a great outcry uh, of, of the Jewish people. But it speaks to a bigger thing, and that is there's always been persecution of the Jews. There has always been persecution of the Jews. We see it in the pages of Scripture. We see it in the pages of history, right? Again, it's a it's a very common theme throughout history. And God says uh, that day is going to come when there's going to be hope. There's going to be hope in your future, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own border. Verse 18, I have heard surely, I've surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. And so again, you know, uh, God's people went through a time of discipline. He says, restore me and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. So again, you know, the Jewish people, they needed discipline. We sometimes need discipline. And when we get discipline, we need to repent. When we make mistakes, when we sin, when we step outside of the will of God, we need to repent. Does that mean we'll be perfect? No. But can I tell you this? Hear me now. Hear me on this one. I hope the point we're making today is God has a prophetic picture. Right? God is in control of all things. God has a plan. And He has a plan for all of history, and He has a plan for my life and for your life. And can I tell you what? I don't want to be outside of that plan. Can I walk in sin enough and do my own thing that I miss out on some of his plan for my life? Yes, I can. I don't want to do that. I do not want to do that. Am I talking about being perfect? No, I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about deliberately walking outside of the will of the Lord, asking for his discipline. I don't want to ask for his discipline. I don't want to live a life that that forces his disciplinary hand on my life. I want to I want to live according to the will of the Lord because He is good, because He wants relationship with me, and because He has a perfect plan for our lives and for all of history. Right? So please, please be in that place. Be in that place. Again, I hope I'm being clear. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about not running from the Lord. I'm talking about not acting like this life is a vacation. I mean, again, you've heard me say before, one of the great things about the challenges of our day is it's at least awakened people from their slumber, right? Five years ago, all anybody talked about was their 401k, (laughs) right? So sobriety is good. Verse 21, set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel, turn back to these your cities. How long will you gad about, O you black daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing. In the Earth, a woman shall encompass a man, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. They shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities, when I bring back their captivity, the Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. Again, when everybody comes back, when they celebrate, when they worship the Lord in the millennial kingdom they 're going to say, "Bless the Lord, bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness, and there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Can I tell you something? There are a lot of weary souls on the earth today. And there are a lot of sorrowful souls on the earth today. And we don't have to wait for the millennial kingdom to get right with God and to get comfort from that. After this, I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel And the house of Judah, with the seed of man and the seed seed of beast. And and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth... Shall be set on edge. So we all have um, uh, an opportunity to uh, live according to the Lord. And he is going to bring great, great restoration. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Check this out. This is us today. This is a cool thing. Catch this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke. So which covenant was that? That was the Ten Commandments. That was the Mosaic law. He says, I brought them out of Egypt and I brought Moses up on that mountain and I gave him the Old Testament law and I said, hey, everybody obey that, right? Did they obey it? No, they broke it right? Nobody can live up to that law. It was God's standard, right? And he says, the days are coming when I'm going to bring a new covenant. What's the new covenant? Jesus Christ and the grace that comes through him. Yeah. And this is, in, and though I was a husband to them, verse 8, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall, each man, shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And so he says, I'm going to, there's a new covenant coming. And again, for us, he says, and this with the nation of Israel, we're adopted. Romans tells us that we're adopted children through Jesus Christ into this family of the Jewish people. So we are spiritual, spiritually Jewish people, right? Yeah. And, and this new covenant applies to us. You say, well, how does that apply to us? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 8. All over the right, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, then Hebrews. If you get James or 1st or 2nd Peter, you went too far. All right, Hebrews chapter 8. When you're there, say there. All right, starting in verse 6. Check this out. Now, the whole context of the book of Hebrews is all about the new covenant, that that the grace of Jesus Christ and the new covenant through him is better than the Old Testament law. And he goes through a lot of uh, technical detail related to this. But look at this, starting verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, that's Jesus, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with him, he says, look at this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Are these familiar words? Yes, I just read them not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Isn't that rich? Yeah. Because of Jesus Christ, I mean, should you obey the Ten Commandments? Yeah, we should. We should. But because of Jesus Christ, when we mess up, guess what? God doesn't remember a forgiven sin. Right? Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you how many people over the years have come to me and said, Man, I am just so troubled by that sin that I lived in my past. Or even that sin that I lived yesterday. And I'll say, did you ask the Lord to forgive you? Well, yeah. Yeah. So why are we talking about it? Every time you bring it up, you're reminding the Lord. and He's like, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to take away from the attributes of God. Right. But somehow when I say, Lord, I'm so sorry about that. You know, that candy bar I stole back in 1973. He's like, what? (laughs) Oh, yeah, God says. And then you're like, oh, I shouldn't have reminded him. Right. He says their sin and their lawless deeds. I will remember No more. I will remember no more. That's because of Jesus Christ. That's because of Jesus Christ. So the point being, yeah, is the millennium going to be awesome? You bet. Was it something that the Jewish people uh, in a Babylonian siege could look forward to? You bet. Is it something that we in our challenge today can look forward to? You bet. Man, I am stoked about the millennial kingdom. It's going to be cool. It's going to be very cool. But between now and then, guess what? I get to live according to a new covenant established by Jesus Christ that's on better terms, a better covenant, because it was established on better promises. And because of that, my sin and my lawless deeds, he will remember no more. Now you say, I'm sorry, you're just not being emphatic enough. Okay, turn over to chapter 10 of Hebrews. Look at this. When God repeats something, it's for emphasis. Chapter 10, starting in verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses us witnesses to us, for after he has said before, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. How does that happen? Because the Holy Spirit indwells us. Yeah. Right? We don't have to worry about working to try to Obey this law and that law. We just, as Galatians says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is within us. The Holy Spirit Spirit guides us and leads us and gives us the power and the ability to live the godly life. So he says, this is the covenant I'll make with them after those days. I'm going to put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I'll, I'll write them. And then he adds, their sin and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. Isn't that beautiful? God records those words of Jeremiah. Turn back to Jeremiah. God records these words of Jeremiah 31 twice in the book of Hebrews. That's fascinating to me. Twice in the book of Hebrews. And that relationship of the new covenant is available to us today. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Verse 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the God that created the, the sun, moon, and stars, right? So he's just closing out for emphasis here. Hey, we're talking about the God who made everything, right? And here's what he says. If those ordinances depart from me, from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from, from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord. If heaven can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. So here's what God's saying. By the way, he says, the God who made the sun, moon and stars is the one talking to you now. So if you can measure heaven, then everything I've just said about Israel doesn't pertain. I, 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 I was wrong. Can you measure heaven? No no way. No, no way. Has God cast off his Jewish people? No, no way. No way. No. no way. no way. In the prophetic picture, all that's got to play out with the people of Israel because God's told us in these verses and lots of others that he's not done dealing with the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 11, verse 1 says, I say then, has God cast away his people, the Jewish people? Certainly not. Certainly not. And so, yep, sure enough, if you can measure the earth, then God's done with the Jewish people. Right? But you can't measure the earth. I'm sorry, measure heaven or the foundations of the earth. You can't measure it. Right? And so God's not done with the Jewish people. I like the way he puts it there. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built... For the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, the surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Gareb, and it shall turn toward Goath and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and of the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. So again, uh, we see there's going to be a literal Jerusalem, a literal temple Literal death and destruction uh, described pretty graphically, honestly, in Ezekiel 38. And uh, God's going to bring all this prophetic picture together. So God has a big prophetic plan, right? God has a very big prophetic plan. And God has a love for the Jews. He always has. Um, Specifically, the Messiah came through the Jewish people. And God is not done with the Jewish people. He's not cast them off. And he's ultimately going to restore them. And along the way, he gives us opportunity to, be felt, to have fellowship with him. He loves to be our God and we his people. And we live under the new covenant where God remembers our sins no more. Can I tell you this? Just 30 seconds to close. Don't miss it. Don't get so distracted by life that we miss out on life. Can I tell you that? Don't get so distracted by life that we miss out on life. And don't don't run from the purposes of the Lord, right? Can we learn from Jonah, right? Can we learn from Jonah, right? Did God want to spank Jonah? No, He wanted to restore Jonah. He restored him so much He chased him down, right? Right? Boy, it would have been a lot easier for Jonah to just say, yeah, sure. <laughs> right? The lesson from Jonah is, "Yes, yeah, sure, Lord. Whatever. Nineveh seems overwhelming to me, but whatever you say, Lord, that would have been easier. That would have been easier. And I'm, you know, I'm simple-minded. I'll go with... Yes, yeah, sure. Yep. And our sin, we live under a new covenant, a better covenant, where His Holy Spirit is in us, and our sin and our lawless deeds, He will remember no more. That's spoken to a group of people that are surrounded by Babylonian soldiers. Amazing comfort in any situation. Spoken by the heart of God. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us, so much beyond what we can ask or imagine and certainly beyond what we deserve. And so, Lord, we just thank you and we want to be in your will, Lord, we want to be right where you have us for such a time as this, Lord, you've placed us on this earth and this place to carry out your will. Even when, even when it seems maybe insignificant or it seems burdensome or, or whatever, Lord, but we, we know we have, we have fellowship with you and we have opportunity to, to just sit at your feet. And so, Lord, please have your way with us. Please guide us and lead us by your spirit. Please empower us to do the right thing and to make the right decisions and to live according to your perfect will. That your plan can be so beautifully carried out in our lives. Lord, thanks for the privilege of being your children. Have your way with us, Lord. Please guide us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.